Exodus 15, verses 11 to 13. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. This is Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, we ask that you would bless the very reading of your word. Lord, but that you would also, by the power of your spirit, do the thing in this moment that only you can do. We pray that you would shine light on these words that are in your word. Lord, that you would shine light on particularly dark places in our hearts. Lord, you would use these words to great effect in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives, and in our body. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Bible presents many vivid images. 
In one of the scripture's most vivid images that it gives or presents to us is an image about itself. There's a place in the New Testament where we learn that the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And that it's able to cut and pierce even down to the bones and the marrow. And I tell you that because I think this scene from the book of Acts, the Ananias and the Sapphira scene, is one of the Bible's uniquely surgical sections. Now, I had a surgery 10 years ago. So you, you guys just humor me for a second while I explain basic surgery, okay? Trust me. So I had a torn labrum, and the idea is that these doctors who have tons of training will take a knife and cut me, cut through skin and muscle, or in this case, poke holes in different parts of me to wound me, to cut me, but for the purpose of bringing healing to me. And to this day, if I stretch my arm all the way to the top, I can still feel the tightness there. So sometimes the, the, the wounds don't ever necessarily go away, but I have function. I'm healed to a degree. Tonight's text, the scene of Ananias and Sapphira, I think is like that. It is actually supposed to, in some ways, hurt us in order to heal us. It's supposed to cut us in order to bring comfort to us. I think it's supposed to actually bring us a little pain and discomfort in order to show us something of the promises of God. So tonight, the Holy Spirit will serve as something of a surgeon, and I am like a first-year resident. Like somebody's bringing some tools over to me, and I'm going to pick them up with shaky hands and a trembling voice and try to do the work. As we've traveled through the book of Acts, we've come to this, what I call the Acts question. And the Acts question goes something like this. What means does the Holy Spirit use to the ends that the name of Jesus is proclaimed, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Samaria, but to the ends of the earth? And we've learned as we've traveled through Acts that the means the Spirit uses, um, the Spirit uses means like the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of Jesus' resurrection. That's a means that God uses, that the Spirit uses to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. We learn about the Christian community, vibrant and unified, is a means that God uses to the end that the gospel goes to all the world. We learn that the Spirit uses even the opposition, last week, of the local leaders in such a way to overcome that opposition to the ends that the gospel is proclaimed to all the world. And tonight we learned that God himself brings judgment on his people 
to the end that the gospel could be proclaimed to all the world. So we're going to take a look at that tonight. And as we take a look at it, there's a main thing I hope you hear tonight. If you don't hear anything else I say, this is the main thing. The main thing I think this text is supposed to show us is that our Lord Jesus, crucified, resurrected, ascending, reigning, ruling, returning soon, protects his church against the schemes of the enemy. So let's take a look. In the first section that we heard our friend Sarah read, we learn again of the vibrant richness of the early Christian community. Look with me at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. He goes on to say in verse 34 that there was not a needy person among them, for there were for as many of our owners of land or houses sold them and bought the, the, the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet so it could be distributed to any who had need. We get a portrait of this early Christian community that has such a deep unity amongst each other, the kind of unity that only the Spirit can give, that results in the deepest possible generosity toward one another. The kind of generosity that only the Spirit can give birth. Now, this would have been revolutionary in the ancient world. See, one of the things that was uniquely revolutionary about the early Christian community is it could be comprised of people both married and single. It could be comprised of widows. It could be comprised of slaves as well as free people, of men as well as women, of people of different ethnicities because of this radical unity and generosity to take care of one another in what was an extremely lonely and brutal world, the world of the first century. Now, some of this generosity is lost on us because we're city people. And as city people, the value of land is sometimes lost on us. Although in certain parts of the city, including our own, land is extremely valuable. It's being fought over constantly. Properties and, and buildings are being wrestled for all the time. But you have to understand in the ancient world, to have land was to have security. So the idea of the early Christians selling their land and their houses to give to others in need would be like you and I essentially emptying our bank accounts, our savings for our future. Whatever it is you're looking to financially to give you security, they said, we don't need that. The Lord will be our security, and we'll make sure that every other member of our community has security also. And there's one exemplary, I guess the word would be example of this. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In this narrative, Barnabas serves as the contrast to what we're about to see from Ananias and Sapphira. He sells, and he gives, and he gives generously. All of that we're supposed to take in before we try to understand what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. 
So let's take a look at them. This is verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. The emphasis is that this was deliberate. This was purposeful. This was a unified action between the two of them to deceive. And notice in verse 3, Peter senses with discernment that something wasn't right. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Peter attributes... Ananias and Sapphira's lie as the activity of Satan. It's satanic activity that is an attack on the unity that the early church was enjoying. It was so wildly attractive to the world around them. It was a satanic attack on this kind of unity. And sometimes it can be a little confusing and maybe a little uncomfortable to think about attacks of Satan. But y'all, I've been in pastoral work in some shape or form or fashion for 17 years. And the more I'm in pastoral work, the more obvious it is to me that there are certain things that cannot be explained any other way than Satan's attack. Satan attacks, Ananias and Sapphira participate and listen to Peter's pleading. Verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Like, you didn't have to sell it. Nobody forced you to sell it. You could have, in good conscience, not sold it. You didn't have to sell it. This is verse four. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have done anything that you wanted to with the proceeds of the sale. You didn't have to give it. Nobody made you do that. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. The judgment that God brings against Ananias' lie is swift and it's sudden, which, believe it or not, is exceedingly rare to see in the Bible. I think there's something of a popular opinion 
that the God of the Bible is always sort of angrily striking people dead. It's really not true. God's judgment in the scriptures is mostly extremely slow. People are are allowed to do evil things for long amounts of time. The Bible says that one reason his judgment is slow is because God is patient. And it's very rarely sudden like this and obvious like this. Most of the time, God brings his judgment in ways no one was expecting. But it is the case that most of the time when the Bible speaks of the judgment of God, it is the judgment that comes internally upon God's people. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon all the whole church and all who heard these things. Now the fact that Ananias and Sapphira husband and wife are both mutually held responsible and accountable is also revolutionary in the Roman world. It says a lot about the value of women in the early church. They were serious to be taken seriously. And her name is Sapphira, which means beautiful, which is a way of the narrative telling us that even though she looks beautiful on the outside, there's something dark inside. Same with Ananias. He looks fine on the outside, but there's something dark on the inside. And I just explained to you what happened, but the question is, what are we supposed to do with this? Like, what's the deal here? And this is where I'm going to try to cut a little bit, right? A couple things. There's kind of three main things I think we're supposed to see here. The first thing has to do with holiness. And this is going to be hard to explain. Whenever God acts or does an action like this in the scriptures, normally it is associated with the temple, the temple environment, and the kind of holiness demanded in the most holy places. So, for example, there's a story of these two sons of a priest, and the people, the the worshipers were bringing offerings, and the offerings involved meat, and they were sticking their fork in to take the meat, to grill the meat instead of eat the meat boiled. And they said, if you don't give us the meat we want, we'll take it by force. And God judged them severely for taking a holy thing and profaning it. There's other examples that are like that. But what we're supposed to see there is that somehow this revolutionary thing has happened in the story of the Bible where God's unique holy presence. Another example would be when they're carrying the ark and they're carrying it on a cart. And see, the ark is supposed to be handled more, more, with more care than that. But they take it, it's on a cart, it starts to fall, they grab it, and the person was struck dead. 
Because holy things cannot be profaned. They're too special. And what we're supposed to see here is that no longer is God dwelling in some place on an ark in a temple. But remember, when Jesus goes to the cross, the veil is torn in two. So in other words, the same requirements of holiness that always existed kind of in the temple places now will exist among God's people wherever they are gathered. In other words, when we are in a room like this, when we are in the most sacred of places on the most sacred of grounds, And see, in the book of Acts, we read these stories of the wild activity of the Holy Spirit where the gospel's being proclaimed. People are giving generously. They're standing up to persecution. They're going to take beatings and imprisonment. And it all sounds wildly exciting, because it is. But what also comes along with the work of the Holy Spirit comes the seriousness, we might say, about holiness. See, the Bible knows this concept of the dangerous holiness of God. You just enter carefully. Now, of course, that challenges us, and it challenges me deeply. It challenges sort of the flippancy by which I can enter into a worship service. The flippancy I can enter into hearing God's word. The flippancy that I can take when I'm gathered with, say, my home group in prayer, in my living room. It's deeply challenging. So the first thing we're supposed to do with this has to do with holiness. Now here's the second thing that we're supposed to do with this, and it's maybe a little more obvious, and it's what we're supposed to think with regard to lying. And the Bible will tell us again and again and again, it's actually one of the most oft-repeated lines in the scriptures. Hear me, that our Lord hates lying. It says he hates, he hates a lying tongue. Now there's so many things about this. But at least one thing about it is we're human persons. We're unique creatures. One of the unique things that God has given us the ability to do is to be honest about ourselves. We throw that away when we lie. So it's an affront to his own image that is in us. Not to mention the fact that he's total truth in his person. Whenever God says he hates something, the Lord hates a lying tongue, we should pay a lot of attention to that. He hates lying. And what's interesting here is it's a particular kind of lying, isn't it? It's a pretentious kind of lying. It's a lying that's intended to come off a certain way publicly. It's a hypocritical type of lying. There's a place in the Proverbs that says that the Lord hates the sacrifices of the wicked. In other words, God's not interested in us putting on a show for others to see in our sacrificial acts of piety. 
See, the Lord is interested in the heart. The reformer John Calvin said that where there is no honesty, there can be nothing pleasing to God. See, Ananias and Sapphira, they don't want to be generous. They don't want to do that. But they want everybody to think that they are generous. See, that's the lie. And if you hear in Peter's pleading, Peter's pleading something like this. Peter is saying, look, you you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to lie. You didn't have to put on this show. See, this is God we're talking about. This is the Lord we're talking about. He sees you. He knows you. You're his already. You didn't have to pretend. You're invited in this vibrant community to be honest about yourself. In this community, you have nothing you have to prove to anyone. You guys have heard me say before, one of the unique gifts of being a Christian is that you've got nothing to prove anymore. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. There is a pastor named Conrad Pelican. It's a great name, right? A 1560s Lutheran pastor. If you're into Lutheran pastors who no one's ever heard of from the 1560s, Conrad Pelican is your guy. And when reading this text, Conrad Pelican says, here's how it could have gone. Ananias and Sapphira walk in. Peter says, did you sell the land for such and such a price? No, we didn't. And we were wrong. And we walked in here to try to lie about it. And if they'd have done that, they would have been received with forgiveness and mercy and grace. People in the room perhaps saying, I know exactly what that feels like to want to lie like that. Together we can be free. See, that's how it could have gone. I want to give you guys a personal example as I thought about these things this week about how I have felt my own temptation to sort of the sin of Ananias here. And it's not going to be about money. I'm going to extend it to something slightly different. Now, some of you already know this, but I'm going to go and tell you. Um, Your pastor, Joel Busby, is not great at keeping up with his schedule. And I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm this way. I just somehow cannot ever figure out where I'm supposed to be and when. And that is my own fault. That's no one else's fault. There are people who help me with this, and it's not their fault. <laughs> and and on, on, a, on somewhat of a regular basis, I'll forget when I'm supposed to be somewhere. And somebody will write me and be like, hey, are we still on for 3 o'clock? And, and I promise you this is what I'm tempted to do. And let's say I can't be there at 3 o'clock. I'm tempted to say, you know what? I'm so sorry. But something came up at the last second. And my kids have something going on. And I need to be able to be there. Do you see what's unique about that lie? See, it's a lie that is about me trying to position myself a certain way. See, I'm the pastor, and I'm supposed to be so caring and not negligent of people. 
And so much of how, what makes me feel valuable as a person, if I'm just being honest with you, is the fact that I'm caring person. And if caring person is negligent about a schedule in a way that inconveniences other people, especially the people in his care, then what kind of caring pastor is that? So I can lie about it so that you'll think I'm caring. And I can even get my family involved because then you'll think, oh, look at him, the way he puts his family first. See, this story is not supposed to tell us if you tell a lie, God might strike you dead. It's supposed to tell us that there's a better way to live in this world under the rule and reign of God, and that is to be honest about yourself, especially within Christ's body. And you don't have to pretend and posture yourself in a church community. And the story is supposed to beckon us to repent and to turn away from those prideful dispositions and to turn to the freedom that's offered in Jesus. So there's something we're supposed to do with this with regard to holiness. There's something we're supposed to do with this with regard to lying. And then there's a third thing I, sp- I think we're supposed to see here. And, and here's this third thing. You cannot read this story without realizing that us as God's people, as a church community, and I mean that not in the abstract, I mean it in the concrete, as Grace Fellowship. We are vulnerable to Satan's attacks. The Bible speaks of Satan as the deceiver. And you guys have heard me say this before, but one of the harrowing things about Satan being a deceiver is that if we were deceived, we would not know it by definition. A harrowing thing about Satan is also that he is the great accuser and the two work in a one-two punch to trick us and then we sin and then he accuses us so that we hide. You see how that's uniquely deadly? And he he roars around like a prowling lion is what this text teaches us. But listen to me tonight. You don't have to be afraid. And here's why. Because this story is meant to teach us that our Lord Jesus will not allow. He will not allow Satan to thwart the mission of his church. He won't allow it, which actually gives us a lot of peace. It means we don't have to be so neurotically freaked out all the time. We can trust the Lord to work things out in his own time and in his own way. It's uniquely hopeful that brings unique peace, especially in a time when churches in our circles are riddled with such scandal. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther spoke often about the attacks of the devil that he felt 
that he's experienced, that he saw. There were times where he was in his study, tormented, he says, by the powers of darkness. And there's one particular evening where in the shadows he sees, and according to Luther, he sees Satan himself. And, And listen to what Luther does. He strikes a candle. I mean, sorry, he strikes a match. I guess you don't strike a candle. That's a, that's a great candle if you can just strike it. He strikes a match. He lights a candle. According to Luther, he looks the devil in the face and says, Be gone, Satan. I'm baptized. I belong to Christ. And the devil runs away. The main thing I think this is supposed to do is to call us to repentance from our posturing and to call us to confidence in the power of our Lord Jesus. And while we're on the subject of the power of our Lord Jesus, let me end by just saying these things. This is obviously a scene of God's judgment, but just remember, never forget, that all the judgment language of the Bible is eventually traveling toward or moving away from our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross where he bears the judgment of evil and sin and death. And it's on the cross of Jesus where he wins a great victory over them and he bids sinners like you and me to come and be forgiven and be free. I don't know who needs to hear this tonight. In fact, I do, all of us. In the cross of Jesus, you can come and you can be forgiven and you can be free. I don't know when the last time someone has told you that in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven and you can be free, but it's the truth. And as if that were not enough, this Jesus who goes to the cross is raised from the dead so that a new way of living is possible for you. His spirit lives inside of you. So pretend, posture, present yourself falsely no more. Because there are people, and they're even in this room, that will tell you the truth about yourself. And the truth is, no matter what kind of trees you're hiding behind, that the same one who lit the stars knows you and he loves you. And you can be free. And your worth is not in your posturing. Your worth is not in your good pastoring. It's so much more secure than that. And as if that were not enough, the same Lord Jesus invites us to come and eat. Let's pray.